Chapter 24 of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Chapter 24 Life in the Swamps our readers will perhaps feel an interest to turn back with us and follow the singular wanderings of the mysterious personage whose wild denunciations had so disturbed the minds of the worshippers at the camp meeting. There is a twilight ground between the boundaries of the sane and the insane which the old Greeks and Romans regarded with a peculiar veneration. They held a person whose faculties were thus darkened as walking under the awful shadow of a supernatural presence, and, as the mysterious secrets of the stars only become visible in the night, so in these eclipses of the more material faculties they held there was often an awakening of supernatural perceptions. The hot and positive light of our modern materialism which exhales from the growth of our existence every dewdrop, while searches out and dries every rivulet of romance, which sends an unsparing beam into every cool grotto of poetic possibility, withering the moss and turning the dropping cave to a dusty den. This spirit, so remorseless, allows us no such indefinite land. There are but two words in the whole department of modern anthropology, the sane and the insane, the latter dismissed from human reckoning almost with contempt. We should find it difficult to give a suitable name to the strange and abnormal condition in which this singular being, of whom we are speaking, passed the most of his time. It was a state of exultation and trance, which yet appeared not at all to impede the exercise of his outward and physical faculties, but rather to give them a preternatural keenness and intensity, such as sometimes attends the more completely developed phenomena of somnambulism. In regard to his physical system, there was also much that was peculiar, our readers may imagine a human body of the largest and keenest vitality to grow up so completely under the nursing influence of nature that it may seem to be as perfectly en rapport with them as a tree, so that the rain, the wind, and the thunder, all those forces from which human beings generally seek shelter, seem to hold with it a kind of fellowship and be familiar companions of existence. Such was the case with Dread. So completely had he come into sympathy and communion with nature, and with those forms of it which more particularly surrounded him in the swamps, that he moved about among them with as much ease as a lady treads her turkey carpet. What would seem to us in recital to be incredible hardship was to him but an ordinary condition of existence to walk knee-deep in the spongy soil of the swamp, to force his way through thickets, to lie all night sinking in the porous soil 
or to crouch like the alligator among reeds and rushes, or to him situations of as much comfort as well-curtained beds and pillows are to us. It is not to be denied that there is in this savage perfection of the natural organs a keen and almost fierce delight, which must excel the softest seductions of luxury. Anybody who has ever watched the eager zest with which the hunting dog plunges through the woods, darts through the thicket, or dives into water in an ecstasy of enjoyment, sees something of what such vital force must be. Dread was under the inspiring belief that he was the subject of visions and supernatural communications. The African race are said by mesmerists to possess in the fullest degree that peculiar temperament which fits them for the evolution of mesmeric phenomena, and hence the existence among them to this day of men and women who are supposed to have peculiar magical powers. The grandfather of Dread, on his mother's side, had been one of these reputed African sorcerers, and he had early discovered in the boy this peculiar species of temperament. He had taught him the secret of snake-charming, and had possessed his mind from childhood with expectations of prophetic and supernatural impulses. That mysterious and singular gift, whatever it may be, which highland seers denominate second sight, is a very common tradition amongst the Negroes, and there are not wanting thousands of reputed instances among them to confirm belief in it. What this faculty may be, we shall not pretend to say, whether there be in the soul a yet undeveloped attribute, which is to be to the future what memory is to the past, or whether in some individuals extremely high and perfect conditions of the sensuous organization endows them with something of that certainty of instinctive discrimination which belongs to animals, or things which we shall not venture to decide upon. It was, however, an absolute fact with regard to dread that he had often escaped danger by means of a peculiarity of this kind. He had been warned from particular places where the hunters had laid in wait for him, had foreseen in times of want where game might be ensnared, and received intimations where persons were to be found in whom he might safely confide and his predictions with regard to persons and things had often chanced to be so strikingly true as to invest his sayings with a singular awe and importance among his associates. It was a remarkable fact, but one not peculiar to this case alone, that the mysterious exaltation of mind in this individual seemed to run parallel with the current of shrewd practical sense, and like a man who converses alternately in two languages, he would speak now the language of exaltation, and now that of common life, interchangeably. This peculiarity imparted a singular and grotesque effect to his whole personality. On the night of the camp meeting, 
He was, as we have already seen, in a state of the highest ecstasy. The wanton murder of his associate seemed to flood his soul with an awful tide of emotion, as a thundercloud is filled and shaken by slow-gathering electricity. And although the distance from his retreat to the campground was nearly fifteen miles, most of it through what seemed to be impassable swamps, yet he performed it with as little consciousness of fatigue as if he had been a spirit. Even had he been perceived at that time, it is probable that he could no more have been taken or bound than the demoniac of Gadara. After he parted from Harry, he pursued his way to the interior of the swamp, as was his usual habit, repeating to himself in a chanting voice such words of prophetic writ as were familiar to him. The day had been sultry, and it was now an hour or two past midnight when a thunderstorm, which had long been gathering and muttering in the distant sky, began to develop its forces. A low, shivering sigh crept through the woods and swayed in the weird whistlings the tops of the pines, and sharp arrows of lightning came glittering down among the darkness of the branches, as if sent from the bow of some warlike angel. An army of heavy clouds swept in a moment across the moon, and then came a broad, dazzling, blinding sheet of flame concentrating itself on the top of a tall pine near where Dread was standing, and in a moment shivered all its branches to the ground, as a child strips the leaves from a twig. Dread clapped his hands with a fierce delight, and while the rain and wind were howling and hissing around him, he shouted aloud, Wake, O arm of the Lord! Wake, put on thy strength! The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars, yea, the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh, hailstones and coals of fire. The storm, which howled around him, bent the forest like a reed, and large trees, uprooted from the spongy and tremulous soil, fell crashing with a tremendous noise. But as if he had been a dark spirit of the tempest, he shouted and exulted. The perception of such awful power seemed to animate him, and yet to excite in his soul an impatience that he whose power was so infinite did not awake to judgment. Rend the heavens, he cried, and come down, avenge the innocent blood, cast forth thine arrows and slay them, shoot out thy lightnings and destroy them. His soul seemed to kindle with almost a fierce impatience at the toleration of that almighty being, who, having the power to blast and to burn, so silently endures. Could dread have possessed himself of those lightnings, what would have stood before him? But his cry, like the cry of thousands, only went up to stand in waiting until an awful coming day. Gradually the storm passed by. The big drops dashed less and less frequently. A softer breeze passed through the forest with a patter like the clapping of a thousand little wings, 
and the moon occasionally looked over the silvery battlements of the great clouds. As Dredd was starting to go forward, one of these clear revealings showed him the cowering form of a man crouched at the root of a tree a few paces in front of him. He was evidently a fugitive, and in fact was the one of whose escape to the swamps the Georgia trader had complained of the day of the meeting. "'Who is there at this time of night?' said Dredd, coming up to him. "'I have lost my way,' said the other. "'I don't know where I am.' "'A runaway?' inquired Dredd. "'Don't betray me,' said the other apprehensively. "'Betray you? Would I do that?' said Dredd. "'How did you get into the swamp?' I got away from a soul-driver's camp that was taking us on through the states. Oh, oh, said Dredd, camp meeting and driver's camp right alongside of each other, shepherds that sell the flock and pick the bones. Uh, well, come, old man, I'll take you home with me. I'm pretty much beat out, said the man. It's been up over my knees every step, and I don't know but what they'd set the dogs after me. If they do, I'll let them kill me and be done with it, for I'm about ready to have it over with. I got free once, and got clear up to New York, and got me a little bit of a house, and a wife and two children, with a little money beforehand. And then they nabbed me, and sent me back again, and Massa sold me to the drivers, and I believe I was about as good's die. There's no use in trying to live, everything going again a body so. Die? No, indeed you won't, said Dred. Not if I've got a hold of you. Take heart, man, take heart. Before morning I'll put you where the dogs can't find you, nor anything else. Come on up with you. The man rose and made an effort to follow, but wearied and unused as he was to the choked and perplexed way, he stumbled and fell almost every minute. How now, old brother, said Dred, this won't do. I must put you over my shoulder as I have many a buck before now. And suiting the action to the word, he put the man on his back and bidding him hold fast to him, went on, picking his way as if he scarcely perceived his weight. It was now between two and three o'clock, and the clouds, gradually dispersing, allowed the full light of the moon to slide down here and there through the wet and shivering foliage. No sound was heard, save the humming of insects and the crackling plunges by which Dredd made his way forward. "'You must be pretty strong,' said his companion. Have you been in the swamps long? Yes, said the other. I have been a wild man, every man's hand against me, a companion of the dragons and the owls, this many a year. I have made my bed with the leviathan among the reeds and the rushes. I have found the alligators and the snakes better neighbors than Christians. They let those alone that let them alone. But Christians will hunt for the precious life. 
After about an hour of steady traveling, Dredd arrived at the outskirts of the island which we have described. For about twenty paces before he reached it, he waded waist-deep in water. Creeping out at last and telling the other one to follow him, he began carefully coursing along on his hands and knees, giving at the same time a long, shrill, peculiar whistle. It was responded to by a similar sound which seemed to proceed through the bushes. After a while, a crackling noise was heard as of some animal which gradually seemed to come nearer and nearer to them, till finally a large water-dog emerged from the underbrush and began testifying to his joy at the arrival of the newcomer by most extravagant gambols. "'So ho, Buck, quiet, my boy,' said Dredd. "'Show us the way in.' The dog, as if understanding the words, immediately turned into the thicket, and Dredd and his companion followed him on their hands and knees. The path wound up and down the brushwood through many a sharp turnings, till at last it ceased altogether at the roots of a tree. And while the dog disappeared among the brushwood, Dredd climbed the tree and directed his companion to follow him, and proceeding out onto one of the longest limbs, he sprang nimbly to the ground in the cleared space which we have before described. His wife was standing waiting for him, and threw herself upon him with a cry of joy. "'Oh, you've come back! I thought sure enough they'd got you this time!' "'Not yet. I must continue till the opening of the seals, uh, till the vision cometh. Have you buried him?' "'No. There's a grave dug down yonder, and he's been carried there.' "'Come, then,' said Dredd. At a distant part of the clearing was a blasted cedar tree, all whose natural foliage had perished. But it was veiled from head to foot in long wreaths of tillandsia, the parasitic moss of these regions, and in the dim light of the approaching dawn might have formed no unapt resemblance to a gigantic specter dressed in mourning weeds. Beneath this tree, Dredd had interred, from time to time, the bodies of fugitives which he had found dead in the swamps, attaching to this disposition of them some peculiar, superstitious idea. The widow of the dead, the wife of Dredd and the newcomer, were now gathered around the shallow grave, for the soil was such as scarcely gave room to make a place deep enough for a grave without its becoming filled with water. The dawn was just commencing, a dim foreshadowing in the sky. The moon and stars were still shining. Dredd stood and looked up and spoke in a solemn voice, Seek him that maketh Arcturus and Orion, that turneth the shadow of death into morning. Behold those lights in the sky, the lights in his hands pierced for the sins of the world and spread forth as on a cross. But the day shall come that he shall lay down the yoke and he will bear the sin of the world no longer. Then shall come the great judgment 
He will lay righteousness to the line and judgment to the plummet, and the hail shall sweep away the refuges of lies. He stooped and lifting the body, laid him in the grave, and at this moment the wife broke into a loud lament. Hush, woman, said Dread, raising his hand. Weep ye not for the dead, neither bewail him, but weep ye sore for the living. He must rest till the rest of his brethren be killed, for the vision is sealed up for an appointed time. If it tarry, wait for it. It shall surely come, and shall not tarry. End of chapter 24 Life in the Swamps